He is the host of the Setting the Pace podcast, and you can check out his work on a substack called The Blue and Golden. We welcome Alex Golden on to Hoopsology. Welcome, Alex. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Matt, it's a, it's a first time being on the show, but I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk about the Pacers. And thanks for coming on, uh, the Pacers, as we were talking off air before you joined, that they're one of our favorite teams just to chat about. Um, our podcast started um, in 2020. We launched it in 2020. And I think since the bubble on, um, the Pacers have been one of those teams that have been on such a unique journey since then. So uh, we always like talking about them. So they've been in the news recently, and <laughs> I'm sure you've been tracking this a bunch regarding Pascal Skiakum. Just uh, as a, a note, um, Matt and I, I've been kind of, tracking Pascal because he went to New Mexico State. We're from New Mexico. So we're kind of biased towards Pascal a little bit just in terms of his NBA career. So overall, just before we get to just him in Indiana, what was your first impressions of when you first heard the trade? Yeah, so I was uh it was interesting because we were actually recording a podcast. I believe it was on a on a Tuesday night and we were like trying to pre-record some stuff just to have some stuff for the rest of the week. And all of a sudden, Shams tweets out that the you know the talks are getting serious. We're like, okay, we're gonna have to you know put this one in the in the bag and just do something different. But it was really cool because Pascal Siakam was a name we've heard back all the way to the offseason. and I think Pacer fans have long wanted that power forward spot to be filled by a legitimate guy that's someone you can trust and and really be a capable player next to Tyrese Halliburton, uh, but really just someone next to Miles Turner too because. Since that young left after the 2018-2019 season, they had DeMontis Sabonis playing the power forward spot and Miles Turner kind of playing the power forward spot as like two centers trying to pigeonhole one guy into that didn't really work. Then you had Jalen Smith last year start out the season. Then you had Aaron Eastmith, who's six foot five, playing power forward. So they really just didn't have a long-term answer. So getting a guy that's a two-time All-NBA guy, two-time, you know, all-star and an NBA champion, that's 29 years old on your team, and you really didn't have to give up too much except really two expiring contracts, two picks and a bad draft and a protected pick in 2026. It felt like it was a no brainer. And I was just so surprised that Toronto was not able to get more out of Indiana for Pascal Siakam. Um, do you know why that was the case? Um, was it just a bad deal that Toronto made or do you think they have alternative motives? Well, I just think part of the problem was Pascal Siakam's looking for a big payday. And so if there's teams that are wanting to you know, pay pay him, they, they might not have the salary or the financial flexibility like Indiana has. Like Golden State was a name that was very heavily rumored that wanted Pascal Siakam. He wasn't that excited about going there because he knew they couldn't offer him that max contract that he's looking for. The Pacers have that ability to do that with their cap space in the offseason. So I just think it made a lot of sense for Indiana to kind of be that pair for him. And when you think about it, there was nobody else out there that could offer what the Pacers could offer. You know, giving three first round picks, whether they're, you know, labeled as bad or not, those are still assets. And then Toronto also gets Bruce Brown, a, a highly coveted player that all 29 teams in the league would love to have on their roster. They can flip him for something else, too, which we've already heard that be put in reports. You know, he was asked about playing for Tom Thibodeau and the Knicks already, and he's not even been a Raptor for more than three or four days. It's just funny to me how quick things change, but I just feel like Indiana said, look, you're not going to get a better offer. There's not going to be teams out there that can afford to keep Pascal long-term. We're putting our flag on the ground. This is the offer we're giving you. It's the best offer you're going to get. Take it or leave it. And Masai Ujiri said, okay, you know, we got to take it. It's the best deal we got. And the thing is, if they had traded Pascal in the offseason or potentially last year before the deadline, I think they could have got a King's ransom back compared to what they got. 
just because they waited a little bit too long. And that's what happens when you allow the human side of the business to get into things. They were trying to give them a chance. I understand it. But ultimately, we all saw this coming with OG's pending free agency, Pascal's pending free agency, and the Scotty Barnes era kind of taking over. I think Musayu Ujiri waited about 12 months too late to make this deal. And if he would have traded Pascal with at least another year in his contract, they would have got a lot more. Yeah, I suppose, you know, slow kind of baby steps learning from the Fred Van Vliet situation and, and all that, basically letting him go for free agency. Um, yeah. Curious, from what you've seen, how does the Pacers fan base feel about the trade? I mean, you mentioned kind of being a no-brainer in, in terms of what they had to give up to get Pascal and an elite wing, and you you listed all his accolades there. Does the fan base kind of echo that second sentiment from what you've seen? I would say so for the majority of it. You know, some people are still a little bit worrisome about him being an uh, unrestricted free agent at the end of the year, and he could walk for nothing. But even if he does, the only thing I think the Pacers really feel like they gave up value-wise in this deal for Pascal was that 2026, you know, first-round pick that is top four protected. So if you only have to give up that one pick to take a risk on getting a guy here maybe long-term, play a little what they call pre-agency, try to get a guy here before he gets free agency, I, I think that's worth the risk, you know. It's still it's still a bigger deal than I'm making it out to be probably for what the Pacers actually gave up. But still, Pascal Siakam is the missing piece for this Pacers franchise in terms of needing that long-term for that guy in the front court. So I'm hoping that everything just kind of falls into place over time. They get a little bit more acclimated with one another. And then we can kind of see we can see how the fan base has got excited just because Pascal is something the Pacers have needed a long time. And that's his second guy next to Tyrese Halliburton. And tell us about just from what you've seen very early on and kind of what you're projecting. Uh, what's, what's his fit on the team? I mean, we know the Pacers needed an elite wing and they get that with Pascal overall. What's his fit? I mean, we're hearing everyone talk about like this fit next to Halliburton. What does this actually look like on the court from what you're projecting? Yeah. So I think that Pascal can play, he can play as a secondary playmaker for Tyrese. And we saw that happen when, when Tyrese was going up against like a Boston Celtics defense, there's a, there's a clip. I think Caitlin Cooper put out there on Twitter where drew holiday is basically just guarding Tyrese Halliburton around the half court line. And then all of a sudden it's four on four and the Celtics are like, okay, without Tyrese Halliburton, you guys can't beat us four on four. Now you have Pascal Siakam to deal with. And so he's that secondary guy that can be that score and he can score in a multiple, you know, a different variety of ways. We saw Pascal in his first game against the Blazers. The first shot he made was a pull-up two for about 15, you know, 15, 17 feet out. The very next play, he splashes a catch-and-shoot three in the corner. And then the next time he scored, he took a smaller guy in the post and, and scored on in that way. So he is a three-level scorer, in my opinion. He's not a great three-point shooter. I think he's a capable three-point shooter. He can still knock it down. You still have to respect that. But I just feel like he opens up the game so much more. Every single time you'd watch this Pacers team play, you're trying to figure out who's their number two guy. And it was a different guy on every on a you know night to night basis. It was Aaron Eastmith one night, Benedict Mather, Miles Turner. You know, you just never knew who it was gonna be. Now you know, okay, for the most part, it's going to be Pascal Siakam is that number two guy. And you just need some consistency and some reliability. 
with trying to take down some of these upper teams in the Eastern Conference. And I think Pascal just having the experience that he does, it does provide the Pacers that go-to guy next to Tyrese Halliburton. Is it a one-two punch that can get you to the Eastern Conference Finals or the NBA Finals? I think it's a little too early to say that, but I think it makes you feel good about, hey, we can compete with anybody in the Eastern Conference because they've already beaten teams like Milwaukee four out of five times this year, Boston two out of four. They've split already with Philadelphia. So they've beaten the upper teams in the Eastern Conference, and I think that confidence alone gives Indiana a little bit of an edge that maybe they can hang with these teams that other teams don't think they can hang with. So what exactly do the Pacers need to do to kind of move in that kind of that four seat position to solidify that position? Because right now um, you have the Cavaliers, Knicks, and the Heat in front of them, kind of all in kind of that same pack, for instance, and especially with the Heat where they have tremendous playoff experience. They're kind of like they're known for not having a greatest regular season, but being a dominant force in the playoffs. What does Indiana have to do to kind of, uh, from where you're seeing, um, any weaknesses that you're seeing maybe now that they need to improve in order to, you know, not get bounced in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. I think they just kind of have to figure out how this group right now is going to work. We still have a couple of more weeks until the trade deadline is officially over. So they could continue to make some more deals. I don't know exactly what they're going to do to me. They could really just ride it out the rest of the season. And I'd be fine with that. I think getting past Galsiakam is enough. They do have an open roster spot right now because they only have 14 guys currently locked up. So if there's a buyout candidate that makes some sense, maybe they go out and get somebody like that to help with that rotation a little bit more. But I'm just thinking about this, and I'm thinking if the Pacers can just get past the month of January because they've had 17 games over the last 31 days. Heavy schedule. They played Boston twice. They played uh, Milwaukee twice. They played Atlanta twice, Denver twice, Phoenix twice. So you're talking about you know, aside from Atlanta, some pretty good teams in, in the NBA. And I mean, it just it doesn't make it any easier when you're trying to go up against those teams. But they just get off this road trip. They've got four in a row at home. But that that home stretch is not going to be easy because they're playing Denver. They're playing Phoenix. They're playing Philadelphia. And they're on the road against uh, they play the Grizzlies. So they get a nice one in there. Then they're back on the road against Boston to kind of close the month out. If they can just get to February and and still kind of be about five-ish games above 500, I think they're going to feel pretty good about where they can go to get to that four seed. You know, Justin, you bring up Miami. Like, if that's the five seed they have to play, that's a tough matchup. I, I think, and, and to me, I think the biggest team Indiana has to fear in this entire thing is Boston. And then if you're looking at who their second biggest <laughs> matchup nightmare could be, you can make the case it is Miami. So, do you really want to be four or five or would it be better to be three, six or two, seven in one of those matchups where maybe you're playing a Milwaukee, a team you've already beat four out of five times or Philadelphia who, yeah, they're good, but we haven't seen Philadelphia get out of the second round since Joel Embiid has been on that team. So I think that there are some question marks there and like where you want to position yourself, but you can't get too greedy. You just have to win games. And if you can get home court advantage, I think that's the best way to actually win a series is be that four seed. Hopefully you get like a Cleveland or or a New York and that four or five matchup and you take them down in seven and then you got to go on the road and play Boston. That's going to be tough. So I just that to me is probably the best way to do it. But if they want to maybe have like an Atlanta Hawks Eastern Conference Finals run, maybe falling into that six or seven seed is, is a better place for them. 
Yeah, and in fairness, and to their credit, I mean, I think everyone's scared, certainly of Boston, and uh, and I think Miami too, to an extent. Uh, so they're not in a bad spot there. Uh, wanted to ask Pascal Siakam deal aside, does it feel to you like the difference between last year and this year, like the Pacers are ahead of schedule as far as their development goes? 100%. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton has elevated this team from oh, we're trying to get into the top part of the lottery to we're trading for Pascal Siakam in just two years. Yes, they got Ben Mather and they got Jairus Walker, and now they basically said, we don't even care about the draft that much anymore. We've got our team. We've got our guys. We're going to push all the chips in, not all the chips in, but they're going to push in some chips to be more competitive and try to advance this rebuild a little bit. I mean, Rick Carlisle even said that, you know, we're in year two of our rebuild, but it's accelerated now because Tyrese Halliburton has taken that leap from potentially – First team All-NBA, second team All-NBA. We'll see where he ends up getting the votes. But this is a guy that's leading the votes for Eastern Conference guards by a landslide. And he had more votes than Steph Curry this year, which I think is just kind of telling of how popular he's becoming, how good he's becoming, and how much fun he is playing basketball. Like the level of the highest level. He's playing at a high level, but he's also playing a brand that is so fun that it makes it so much more attractive for guys to want to come here. So You know, Bruce Brown was willing to leave the Denver Nugget championship team or even going to the Lakers. We had a better chance to to win, to take the money and come to Indiana. Obi Toppin was begging his agents to find a trade to get to Indiana. Now, these are role players, but the Pacers have an opportunity to get Pascal Siakam. And there was talks, you know, Philly could have had interest. Dallas had interest. We know that uh, Golden State had interest. Sacramento had interest. But when it came to Indiana, it seemed like Pascal had some pretty, you know, significant interest in being dealt here to be paired with Tyrese Halliburton. They had conversations. They have a relationship, and that's one thing you can't over uh, you can't oversay how much of a pull Tyrese Halliburton has on this team, just because he has such an infectious personality that everybody wants to be around him, and his unselfish style of play makes it so much more fun to be a part of. Where you don't have to worry about, oh, is he a is he a team first guy or is he a me first guy? He'll he'll he'd rather score 12 points and dish out 25 assists than you know score 45 points in a game and have seven assists. That's just that's just him. He would rather get his teammates involved, and he's always got a good spirit about him. If you watch any of the mic'd up moments from Tyrese on social media, you can just kind of see how he is the engine that keeps his car moving. So You know, I'm not trying to toot his horn too much because he's already getting a lot of praise everywhere else. But Tyrese Halliburton is making that jump from all-star to potentially superstar. I don't want to say that and put the car before the horse, but I I definitely feel like we're starting to see him trend up. And you can make the case that he might be the best point guard in the NBA. So we discussed earlier um, just about the Indiana fan base. Could you expand upon that further just in terms of what those fans have gone through. Um, Indiana has a rich tradition of basketball, but yet I think other teams within the NBA just usually overshadow them. It's a, sh- it's a shame that's the case. But kind of with this happening now with Tyrese Halliburton, the rebuild being you know accelerated, things are ahead of schedule. Kind of what's kind of the temperature of the fan base and what separates Indiana fans compared to the rest of the NBA? I would say Indiana fans know basketball pretty well. And that's one thing that I like about these fans is they're pretty smart. There's some that are crazy. We all know that, but that's every fan base. But I think for the for the vast majority, 
they get it and they want to root for a team that's going to play hard, that's going to play the right way, and that's going to try to win. This fan base will not put up with tanking. The, the arena, the excitement around this team the last couple of years when they were tanking was not fun. Yeah, when before Halliburton got hurt last season, um, everybody was pretty on board, and it was just like through the roof excitement. They were like 23 and 18 at the halfway point, and then Halliburton gets hurt in New York, and all of a sudden the season just completely becomes a wash, and they start to position themselves for a better draft pick. I think everybody was just done with the Sabonis, Turner, Malcolm Brogdon era. They were ready for change. Nate McMillan had done all he could do. Then they bring in Nate Bjorkren, who was just maybe the worst hiring of a coach in NBA history. The way that that whole season went down, couldn't even get assistant coaches to want to come coach with him on the staff. Mm. And then you had an assistant coach get into it with a player, Gogo Batadze, Scott Foster, in the middle of the game. I mean, there was just an ugly season. So Pacer fans have seen it all. They've seen Paul George ask for a trade. They've seen the guy that was supposed to be his hero, Victor Oladipo, do the same thing and ask the Miami Heat if he can come play with them. To now you go out and get Tyrese Halliburton in a Sabonis trade, and players are saying, can I come to Indiana and play with Tyrese? So it's been a complete 180 for all of Pacer Nation, and, and they're just ecstatic. I would say the Pascal Siakam trade was the most excited this fan base has been in a long time. Obviously, they were excited about Halliburton, but knowing that they're the front office is being aggressive to go out there and get that second star for Tyrese makes this team feel like, okay, we have something real here. We have something that is sustainable, and we're building towards something, and I think people are ready to hop on and be a part of the journey and see them climb the ladder. Alex, I, I want to ask you, too, about the, I guess, maybe alignment of Coach Carlisle's philosophy along with Halliburton. I mean, obviously, you have to have star players to get the job done anytime a team improves like this. We know in the past, Coach Carlisle has had top-level, very top-ranked offenses from teams he coached in Dallas. What has worked well in Indiana with Coach Carlisle and kind of how do you see like sort of an alignment or synergy between him and Halliburton and, and the system that they're running there? No, I think that's a great question. I think that Rick Carlisle came in here before they got Tyrese Halliburton, and that was someone that he really did love back when he was with Dallas. And that they talked about, I think he talked about like wanting to get him in the draft. And unfortunately they weren't able to get up high enough to get him, but that was someone they really liked and just the way that he played. And so when an opportunity became available for them to be able to get him, he was all for it. Now, Rick Carlisle is known for kind of being a, a very offensive minded coach that likes to kind of control the offense, call plays from the side and get actions moving. But with Tyrese Halliburton, he said, look, I'm going to not even call plays. I'll let you call whatever you want to call. You run the offense. It's your show. I'm just going to take a step back. Now, every once in a while, he might step in and say, I see this, I see that. And him and Ty will talk about it. And sometimes Ty even has the, you know, the authority, I guess you could say, to tell coach, no, we're going to keep doing this. And Rajon Rondo, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure this is public knowledge. You know, when, when the Mavericks traded for Rajon Rondo, Rondo could not stand Rick Carlisle because yeah. Carlisle was, you know, had such a grasp on the offense and wouldn't allow Rondo to be Rondo. So Tyrese Halliburton's first game in Indiana was against the Cavaliers when Rondo was with the Cavs. And he looked at him and said, good luck, you know. And it just was so funny because Halliburton shares a story about how, like, you know, Rick, uh, you know, Rondo's like, you don't want to play with Rick. Rick's not going to let you be yourself. But that's really changed. And you've seen Rick adapt quite a bit here this last couple of last couple of seasons. And 
as this team is growing and developing, one thing we've seen Coach Carlisle do is like he said it, I think it was about a month ago, he said, you know, playing offenses or being a, the greatest offense of all time is is fun. But dating a dating a pretty girl gets boring after a while, especially if she can't guard <laughs> anybody. So it was a, it was a hilarious line that he said in a pregame press conference with the media. And it just kind of made you realize, okay, this offense has been historic, but they've got to change a few things to get better defensively. And last I had checked, they were like sixth or seventh in offense, like the last 15 games and like, and like the 15 to 19 range for defense. So previously they had been like 27, 28th in defense and like first in offense. So they sacrificed some of that offense to get better at defense. Obviously Halliburton's been out, but I just think that those two's relationship is at an all time high and they bounce ideas off each other all the time. And, even even going a step further with another player, I mean, we had Miles Turner on this podcast setting the pace, and we asked him about his relationship with Coach Carlisle, and he said, I just like that he keeps it real. There's no BS with him. He just tells you exactly why he's mad at you, and you know what to fix. You know, if you don't make a if you don't make a right cut on offense or you don't make the right rotation on defense, your butt's gonna sit on the bench. And Benedict Matherin knows all too well about that because Ben Matherin has been probably coached the hardest out of everybody. So I like Rick. He's an old school guy. He's hard nosed, but he's also adapted to the to the younger um, generation that's on this roster now. Yeah, so fascinating to hear that. And I guess you know credit to Coach Carlisle for adapting after all the success that he's had. I mean, do you think the Halliburton thing looks the same without those blowups with Rondo on the roster in Dallas? What so what was that again? Well, do you, do you think, I mean, the Rondo thing that was kind of the precursor to allow this to gel so well with Halliburton? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, I don't, I don't really think it mattered as much. I just think Rick's learned. I mean, Rick obviously had some tension with Luka Doncic. There is no doubt about that. I think that part of the reason he was, you know, dismissed nicely from, from Dallas was because him and Luka didn't always see eye to eye on everything. And I, and I don't really think, and, and, this is just me speculating. I just think Rick's want, Rick wants guys to come in and play hard and not be catered to and have to worry about catering to them 24-7. He knows how special of a player Tyrese Halliburton is, but Tyrese Halliburton works hard. And Tyrese Halliburton is great for the community and does a lot of great things. I'm not saying Luke is not, but I'm just saying, you know, you don't have to worry about Tyrese Halliburton and, and how he's going to – his work ethic, I should say. comes from a great background, like a great family, great family work ethic. His family is so involved in this organization. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but – his dad, Tyrese Halberton's dad, John, is kind of like the leader of the parents of all the players on the team. Like he's always wow. rallying them together, like encouraging them. And if you watch when the Pacers are winning close games and Tyrese is going off, his dad will look back at Kevin Pritchard, Chad Buchanan, where they're sitting at. Don't give him a little fist pump, you know, just let him know, like, <laughs> hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, that's my boy out there, you know, like, but they're, they're bought in completely. So that's what's great, too, is you don't just have the player bought in, you have the entire family bought in. And that's part of the environment Rick Carlisle has created after the Nate Bjorkman debacle. Just getting a coach in here that values family and winning. And I think that that's what they needed. He was familiar with this organization. This is his third time here. He was an assistant with Larry Bird, head coach here at 1.2 before he went to Dallas. So it just it comes all full circle. And he loves being here. And I think that you can just tell that he's willing to do whatever it takes to try to get this organization and franchise to where it needs to be. 
That's so interesting that you mentioned family because, you know, in some other cases, most recently, um, players, families, that's been a negative. I'm just thinking of, you know, all the ball, the different balls in the NBA and their, their father. So um, it's just, it's good just to hear that story. Um, do you think that's something that's prevalent in the NBA in terms of having like a kind of that strong family base um, within just, you know, NBA services, because, you know, we're seeing players that are spending less time in college. They're going like, you know, the overtime round playing overseas or playing in the G league. Um, is that something that could be a trend throughout the rest of the NBA society family dynamic, or do you think it's something that's special to Indiana? Good question. Um, I'm not around enough organizations to really give you a, a great answer on this one besides just Indiana and how they've handled things. But you know, you can probably just tell there's some that are more business than they are more like, let's cater to these players. You know, I mean, when Larry Bird was here, it was like, well, Paul George ain't calling the shots around here. I'm the general manager. I make the decisions. You know, Paul don't make the decisions around here. He plays basketball and I pay him to play basketball. I, it's it's just a totally different generation of players you're dealing with. And you do have to kind of cater to them a little bit. You kind of have to make them feel more important. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just a totally different dynamic. So, I'm sure you'll see it more and more like I'm sure the Spurs are doing whatever they can do to make Wimbenyama happy, right? I think that it all depends on who you have on your roster and who wants a certain thing. You know, not every superstar is going to want their family to be like the, you know, the forefront of what's going on. But like Halliburton is such a family man, like his girlfriend, his dog, like, you know, he'll bring his dog to work sometimes, you know, it's just whatever, like he can do what he wants. He's the franchise, but they want to make sure that they just keep him happy, his family happy. But, you know, when you get family involved, it, it can be kind of messy sometimes. There's no doubt about that. But I think just finding that right balance because you want to make sure everybody feels like they're a part of your organization. And and if you don't treat your, you know, your players' families with love and respect, that might put a red flag on you moving forward with how they can trust you in that organization. So I, I just think from an educated guess, we'll probably see a trend more up in terms of like, let's try to be more connected with, with family and friends and, you know, find the right balance, but also like we want to make this a really good culture, a really good environment. Alex have to ask you about the Eastern conference at large. Are there teams flying under the radar right now? And what kind of looks like trends that you've seen so far that are pretty reliable in the standings versus like I said, maybe some some surprises in the Eastern Conference. What are you expecting moving forward as we get to the All-Star break here? No, that's a good question. I mean, I think the Knicks definitely look like a much better team since they got, since they got OG and Anobi. Mm. How can they continue to add around the edges there and, and just continue to become a better team? I mean, obviously, Tom Thibodeau loves the defensive versatility that OG brings him. Like, he's a one-man defense for them. So you got to love that. I think Cleveland, they've done a really good job maintaining things with all the injuries they've had to Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, like Jared Allen, Donovan Mitchell have really stepped up. And I think sometimes less is more when you have too many guys that need the basketball, too many guys that feel like they need to be involved in everything. And you're trying to share too. Like, it's like you like these guys, but it's also they're in the way. And so I think sometimes less is more. Um, but I mean, Cleveland, they've had an easy schedule too. Like it's not been the roughest schedule. So we'll kind of see how they play out. I think Orlando's dipped back a little bit, just kind of feels you know, they're a young team without a lot of shooting on that roster. I think maybe they're a year or two away from, you know, being like a top six team. But I, I do think that Boston clearly has solidified themselves as the team to beat. Philadelphia, Joel Embiid's playing the best basketball out of anybody 
in the NBA. I mean, he right now to me should be the front runner for MVP uh, if he can play all 65 games. I mean, he's killing it right now. I think we're recording this on Monday night. He has like 54 points still. Uh, still <laughs> plenty of time left to play. So uh, the Bucks, they're a weird team this year. I, I don't buy the Bucks as much. And I know the Pacers mm. beat them four out of five times. I just worry about their defense. I know their offense took a really big step forward, but I don't think they anticipated when they traded Drew Holiday to Portland that he would end up getting flipped back to Boston. So mm. that, to me, they're a team that is very beatable. Um, but but Miami, you can't ever count them out. Jaime Hikes Jr. has been such a surprise for them as a rookie. Um, Josh Richardson coming back there, that was someone I was like, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on that just because Jay Rich looked really good for them. Um, I feel like he'll have some moments in the playoffs just because that's what happens when you're the Miami Heat. You just do stupid things. You can just never count out Jimmy and Bam. And then the Pacers. I think you really do have to give the Pacers a little bit of an opportunity here to kind of prove themselves. Um, once they get to the month of February and on, how can they develop? They've got some dogs out there. Could they make another trade? I think it's very possible. I don't know what that trade is going to look like, but they could make another trade just to, similar to New York to try to get better around the edges and just kind of sure up that starting five, because I still think there is a question mark of who is their starting two uh, next to Aaron Neesmith, Pascal Siaka, Miles Turner, and Tyrese Halliburton. But, you know, Neesmith shooting the ball incredibly well this year, playing really good defense on the perimeter. I think he might be one of the more underrated, underappreciated guys in the league just for what he brings in terms of being a role player. Um, but, but you know, other than that, I mean, I, I kind of went through the whole entire, like, top eight of the East, but I don't think Chicago-Atlanta really feel like any kind of threat to make the playoffs they might make the plan obviously because you have to but I, I don't think they'll be playing spoiler to anybody alex we appreciate you coming on to the show can you please let our audience know where they can find you on social media again your podcast and then your Substack and any other projects you're working on as well yeah i really appreciate you guys having me on it was a lot of fun and uh you know i hopefully we can do this again soon but you guys can follow me on twitter at alex golden nba my podcast is at setting the pace three on instagram and on twitter we basically record daily, so Monday through Friday you can check out podcast about the Indiana Pacers if you're that diehard of a fan. Uh, and I think if you're at this point of the podcast here, you probably are a Pacers fan. So uh, if you're not already, check that out. And then I have some written work over on Substack at theblueandgolden.substack.com. Try to keep up with the team in a written form as well as just the podcast. So as you can tell, I like I like to talk a lot. So just imagine if I put it into words, how different it sounds, but um, <laughs> a little bit of joking there, but you know, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun to do this. It's a lot of fun to cover a team that's playing good basketball and um, I'm excited for what's, what's, what's ahead. So thank you guys so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Alex. Thank you. Yeah.